Now, earlier on this week, Boris Johnson laid out his roadmap to freedom for the country. And so 8th of March, um, schools reopen for all the homeschooling parents. And on the 12th of April, hairdressers reopen, which I, for one, am very much looking forward to. Not sure how bad it's going to be by then. 17th of um, May, um, cinemas reopen. You can see where my priorities lie. And then 21st of June, uh, Lord willing, all legal limits on social contact will be removed. And hopefully life can return a little bit back more to um, normality. So those are the four steps. That's the, uh, the roadmap uh, out of here. I wonder how you're feeling about it. And whether you are, you're really excited, whether you're wary. I mean, how confident can we be um, in the future? It was interesting hearing from Neil. You know, he's optimistic um, about it. And you'll hear people saying, yeah, the triumph of science, science over, over coronavirus and this vaccination program. And we're going to get our lives back and our jobs back and the economy's going to recover and it's going to be a new dawn and a brighter, better future. Although others that I talk to are, are still you know, pretty pessimistic and a little bit wary and... What about these other variants out there, the UK one, um, the South African one, the Brazilian one? How effective will the vaccination program actually be? Even if it is, what if we have new coronaviruses in the future, new lockdowns, new restrictions? I wonder where you are on that spectrum between optimism and pessimism. How confident can we be right now as we move out of this third lockdown? How confident can we be about our futures? Well, it is just this question which is addressed in our passage today, Zechariah chapter 9. We're moving now to the final section of the book, chapters 9 to 14. Two concluding prophecies, 9 to 11, 12 to 14. As the prophet Zechariah moves away from the immediate circumstances of the rebuilding of the temple and looks forward to the future, and the absolute confidence that God's people can have in it. Um, here in chapter 9, we are given two reasons for that confidence. The Lord's protection and this King's coming. So we're going to look at each of them in turn. First of all, the Lord's protection. Have a look at verse 8, the last verse of this opening section. But I, that is the Lord, will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Do you remember how God's people were feeling at the time? Very vulnerable, very exposed, because the, the city walls of Jerusalem still lay in tatters. They were in ruins. And there they are. They're trying to rebuild this temple with the powerful Persian empire encamping around them. And they're thinking to themselves, Look, are we safe? What's stopping us rebuilding this temple only for the Persian empire or army to come in and destroy it just like the Babylonians did before? And here is God promising them his protection, he will encamp around them. No one is getting in, not unless he says so. 
Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. I'm told the cost of a personal bodyguard in London is up to £1,000 per hour, plus expenses, plus VAT, which means it's highly unlikely any of us are going to have a personal bodyguard anytime soon. But can you imagine just how reassuring it must be to have someone with you, you know, alongside, constantly looking out for any threat, any danger, keeping you from physical harm, protecting you, keeping you safe? That is what God is promising his people here. I will be your ultimate personal bodyguard. I will encamp around you. No one will be able to touch you. I, the almighty, all-powerful God of the universe, will be keeping watch over you. Now, the specific protection that God is promising his people here is protection from their oppressors. And did you notice in verses 1 to 7 how the Lord moves down from north to south along the coastline, overthrowing one oppressor after another? Damascus, Hamath, Tyre, Sidon, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, the Philistines. Complete and utter protection of his people from their oppressors. And what is particularly striking for us today is to see just how accurately this prophecy was fulfilled in history. So I don't know how many historians or classicists we have with us today, but you will know that Alexander the Great's conquest of Persia in 333 to 331 BC followed the exact route described in our verses. That Alexander Great is the only person in history to capture Tyre, famously building this causeway to the island, a causeway that you can still see today. That even though Alexander the Great was coming down this route from north to south, overthrowing every Persian-possessed city one after the other, suddenly he stops when he gets to Jerusalem and almost inexplicably spares them. Listen to these words from the famous first century historian Josephus in his Antiquities of the Jews. This is book um, 11. It's quite a long quote. It's describing what happened. Now Alexander, when he had taken Gaza, made haste to go up to Jerusalem. And Jadua, the high priest, when he heard that, was in agony and under terror, as not knowing how he should meet the Macedonians, of which Alexander was the leader. He therefore ordained that the people of God should make supplications, they should pray, and should join with him in offering sacrifices to God, whom he besought to protect the nation, to deliver them from the perils that were coming upon them. Whereupon God warned the high priest in a dream, which came upon him after he had offered sacrifice, that he should take courage, adorn the city, open the gates, and that the rest of the people appear in white garments." but that he and the priest should meet Alexander in habits, that is their religious clothing, proper to their order. When Alexander saw the multitude at a distance in white garments, while the priest stood clothed with fine linen and the high priest in purple and scarlet clothing with his mitre on his head, having the golden plate on which the name of God was engraved, Alexander approached by himself and adored that name 
and first saluted the high priest. Whereupon the kings of Syria and the rest were surprised at what Alexander had done and supposed him to be disordered in his mind. However, Parmenio, Alexander's second in command, alone went up to him and asked him how it came to pass that when all others adored him, he should adore the high priest of the Jews. To whom Alexander replied, I did not adore him, but the God who has honoured him with the high priesthood. For I saw this very person in a dream, in this very habit, when I was at Dios in Macedonia, who when I was considering with myself how I might obtain the dominion of Asia, exhorted me to make no delay, but boldly to pass over the sea thither, for that he would conduct my army and would give me dominion over the Persians. Now look, straight away, let me give all the riders here about this being just one person's account. It is uncorroborated. It's open to the charge of some artistic license. Nevertheless, what a fascinating insight from this very historian, very famous historian, Josephus, as to why Alexander, this great conqueror, didn't actually end up conquering Jerusalem and he suddenly spared Jerusalem. And if this account is true, it shows that even Alexander the Great himself knew who had given him the victory over Persia. God himself. Now look, either way, whether Joseph's account is true or not, do we see in Zechariah's prophecy in verse 4, who is behind all this? The Lord will take away Tyre's possessions. The Lord will destroy her power on the sea. And so, yes, Alexander the Great did conquer all these Persian-possessed cities. But we are being told here, in an account written 150 years before the events that it was describing, that it was the God of the Bible, the Lord himself protecting his people and behind it all. Now, what an encouragement that is for us today who live on the other side of the fulfillment of this prophecy, for us to see the accuracy of it, that the level of detail in it and the trustworthiness of it. This is such an important lesson for us today because Jesus makes incredible promises to his people today of spiritual protection. I will never leave you or forsake you. Every hair on your head is numbered. God will not let you be tempted to sin beyond what you can bear. Resist the devil and he will flee. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you can fear no evil. Why? For I am with you. Complete and utter spiritual protection. And these promises are true, trustworthy, absolutely accurate. If you trust in Jesus Christ, do you see how safe, spiritually speaking, you really are? And if the God of the Bible is able to direct Alexander the Great's heart and rule these cities and nations and protect his people on this grand scale, do you not think he is able to deal with whatever's going on in your heart and your life right now? Of course he can. 
God is the ultimate bodyguard, the ultimate protector of his people who will never allow anything to happen to one of his people without his permission, without some greater purpose in mind. So don't worry about these other variants. Don't worry about any potential new coronavirus or subsequent lockdowns. God says, I am with you. What confidence can we have as we come out of this third lockdown? This prophecy says, absolute confidence. Not in ourselves, not in the science, not in any successful vaccine rollout as wonderful as that is. But ultimately, in the one who is behind it all. The God of the Bible, who protects his people 24-7 every second of the day, guarding our hearts, watching over our souls, keeping us safe, and always with us. Well, if that's the, the first reason why God's people can have absolute confidence in the future, because of the Lord's protection, the second in verses 9 to 17 is this, your king is coming. Let me read from verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, I'm conscious that this idea of an arrival of a king might not resonate that much with us today. For one, we have a queen, not a king. If we think about the arrival of a king, we probably think of the coronation of Prince Charles, which will be a, a national event, but probably won't make too much practical difference um, to our lives. But back then, at this time, it was completely different for God's people. Um, a king made all the difference to their lives, to, to, to lead the people, to restore their fortunes, to bring in a, a better, brighter future. And now here is Zechariah saying, this is this king. This is your king coming for you to bring in this future. He starts prophesying about him. He says in verse 9, your king, personal, intimate, relational. You know, many leaders and politicians today can be distant and aloof and you don't have that much access to him, but this king is approachable. Your king comes to you. He's righteous. Verse 9. You can trust what this king says. There's no flip-flopping on, on policies. There's no lying about him. He will do right by God, right by you, righteous, no corruption, no scandals. There's a, an integrity about this man. Your king, right? He's victorious. He will actually get things done. He will proclaim peace to the nations, verse 10. Just look what he does. His rule will extend to the ends of the earth. It's universal. He's like a sheep, verse 16. Sorry, like a shepherd, verse 16. Saving his flock. And not just that, he's lowly. Righteous, victorious, and lowly, riding on a donkey, doesn't come in this huge chariot with all this sort of showing off his power and might. He has all this power and might, but he's not proud. And he doesn't force through his agenda. He is generally interested in the people he serves. 
He wants what's best for them. He brings double restoration, verse 12, and just look at verse 16 at the end. His people will sparkle in his land like jewels on a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Oh my goodness, do you see what these verses are saying about this king and his people? Do you know how much the British crown jewels are worth? They are estimated at three to five billion pounds. That is just an estimate. They've never been insured. Officially, they are priceless. And that is just the description we are given here of how this king feels about his people. Now, it begs the question, who is this king? And when is he coming? And how can he be my king? Because who doesn't want a leader like this who brings in a future like this? All four gospel writers Describe Jesus Christ entering Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey. Palm Sunday, one week before Jesus would give up his life, sacrifice himself on a cross for the salvation of the world. Two of those gospel writers, Matthew and John, specifically quote this verse. We saw it in our New Testament reading to make the point Jesus is this king. And Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And all our hopes and dreams and desires for a better, brighter future are found in him. Now, at this point, some people might say, well, look, you know, these gospel writers knew about this prophecy in Zechariah, so all they had to do was write about Jesus coming in on a, a donkey and let, hey, presto, prophecy fulfilled. Or even if it did really happen, you know, it's because Jesus knew his Old Testament, knew that's what the Messiah would do. He just made sure he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and anyone can do that. It doesn't automatically make them the saviour of the world. True. Anyone can ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. You could try it out today, see how you get on. But not anyone, no one in fact, has lived the sort of life that Jesus Christ has lived. Truly righteous, truly victorious, truly humble. One of the um, truisms of uh, literary studies is how incredibly difficult it is to portray a good character, a truly good character, without making them seem bland or dull or make the character too simplistic. So hard, so difficult to do. It's probably why there's so much talk at the moment about the rise of the anti-hero in modern pop culture, right? Like a Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean or Arya Stark from Game of Thrones, uh, Johnny Lawrence in, in Cobra Kai. You know, you have more of the compromised hero, this, this mix of good and bad, um, so much easier to portray and so much more interesting to us who are similarly a mix of good and bad. But do you see that when it comes to Jesus Christ... He is portrayed as utterly good, truly righteous, and yet there is nothing remotely dull or bland or uninteresting or simplistic about him. Why is it that so many books, so many songs have been written and sung about him? No one who actually reads the gospel account of Jesus Christ 
comes away from that thinking, yeah, he's just a bit bland, a bit dull, a bit unin. People are compelled by this person, Jesus Christ, even if they don't believe in him. Now, how did the gospel writers do it? They couldn't have made this up. We can't even do it today with good characters. The only way this could be true if he is really real, truly good. The only way it makes sense. And look, think about it for a moment. If Jesus is this king, and if this Jesus is your king, then think of the difference it makes to your life. You don't need to worry about when you're going to get the vaccine or try and jump the queue. Did you read about those two women in Florida this week who dressed themselves up with like glasses and bonnets and gloves to make themselves look over 60, 65 so they could get the vaccine ahead of time? We don't have to play those sort of games because we follow a king who's righteous, who will do right by us, and so we can patiently wait our turn. We don't need to worry about our sin and what it can do to us and, and then hide it from others and blame shift and make excuses for it or make ourselves out to be better than we know we really are because we follow a victorious king who has paid for our sin once for all and freely forgives our sin whenever we confess it to him. We don't need to obsess about our appearance and how we look on Zoom or in person or if we have particularly bouffant hairstyle right now, that's what I tell myself. Because we follow a king who will one day make his people sparkle in the land. Like the most precious jewels in the universe. And how attractive and beautiful we would be with all of Jesus' moral perfection as we see him face to face. You don't need to worry about elevating yourself above others to make a noise at work so you're seen, so you're heard, so you're pushing yourself in front of others all the time. Because we follow a lowly king who is the almighty God of the universe and yet he didn't stand on his rights but gave up his rights and all power for our sake and the sake of others. We do not need to worry about getting old, going gray, slowing up, even facing death itself, because we have a king who has tasted death for us. And our king has risen from the dead, and our king is coming back for us. Now look, is that not something to shout about? Is that not something to get excited about? Whatever the next three, six, nine months hold for us, rejoice greatly. Daughter Zion, shout. Daughter Jerusalem, there is a joy to be had here, not dependent on restrictions being lifted, lockdowns being over, careers reviving, homeschooling ending, or vaccination programs working. As wonderful as these things are, if your joy is based on these things, your joy will be up and down as these things come and go. Now, there's a joy on offer here that is founded upon an unshakable confidence in the future. 
because our king has come to bring salvation and our king is coming back to complete salvation and there is nothing no one can do ultimately to rob us of it. And so can I ask, is Jesus your king? Can you say in your heart, yeah, this Jesus is my king. He is my protector. He is the shepherd of my soul. And one day he will make me sparkle in his land. Because if you can, then you can have absolute confidence in the future, whatever comes your way. And so, lead on, O King Eternal, as one hymn puts it, till sin's fierce war shall cease and holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. For not with swords loud clashing or roll of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Well, let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank and praise you for this chapter in Zechariah as it looks to the distant future, a future which you know, we have seen so much of it already in Alexander the Great, of course, ultimately in Jesus coming, dying on a cross for us, rising from the dead. Thank you for the great reassurance that gives us of your protection of us spiritually if we're trusting in you and the glorious future to come when Jesus Christ returns. So please reassure our hearts of your protection, of your coming, and help us to trust you and live for you today and in the week ahead. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.